Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form journalism from around the world. I'm Madison Derbyshire from the Comment and Analysis Desk. This week is the finale of our Europopulism series. We are joined by Big Read editor Jeff Dyer, Paris Bureau Chief Anselvan Chastny, and Berlin Bureau Chief Guy Chazan to talk about their latest story about European leaders who are struggling to control rising tides of populism in their countries. Throughout the course of the year, the FT has done a series on what we call the Europopulists. And the idea was to look after the Brexit referendum last year and the election of Donald Trump as the US president to look at the possible impact of the far right in Europe and the influence it's going to have in politics in the region. And during the course of the year, we've paid a special focus, obviously, to France and Germany, because not only are they the two most important countries in Europe, but because they had major elections this year. Uh, the piece we've done this week looks at how the far right didn't actually win any of those elections, but looking at whether that's a false consolation or not. And our two correspondents, Anselvan Chassani, the Paris bureau chief, and Guy Chazan, the Berlin bureau chief, are on the line to talk about it. Now, during the course of this piece, you went to two different places in, in France and Germany. Um, Anselvan, maybe you can tell us first about where you went to, why you chose Marseille as a way to, to report on the possible impact of the far right and what you found out when you went there. Well, I, I decided to go to Marseille because there was an, you know, an interesting dynamic down there. The, the far-right National Front had you know, recorded electoral gains over the years, especially since uh, 2014. There, was, uh, there were municipal elections, and one of the um, local National Front politicians there Stéphane Ravier, managed to get a big chunk of the city. The city is, is split in different districts, and he managed to get the northern district, which is the densely populated, rather poor, uh, you know, with a mix of old villages, pretty wealthy villages, old villages, and estates, immigrant estates. And I thought it was really interesting to go back because he tried, after this victory in 2014, which was uh, one of the a dozens of a dozen victories for the National Front that year. He didn't manage to get a seat in, in Parliament in June, right after uh, Emmanuel Macron's election, despite having a really, really good chances to get, to get the seat this time, because the outgoing socialist MP had been convicted of embezzlement, and the last time around he'd come very close to, to, defeating, uh, to defeating her. But in this case, an en marche political novice emerged and, and, and won the seat in the wake of Emmanuel Macron's uh, election. So it was really interesting to, to see why that happened and whether this um, unusual election of, of Emmanuel Macron and uh, the subse subsequent uh, legislative victory um, we, what it meant really uh, on the ground and, and if, you know, if things were changing uh, in Marseille. How did the Macron candidate defeat 
for the National Front candidate? What were the messages she used to win? Well, she she was literally she was one of the activists, one of the en marche, uh, you know, young activists uh, in in Marseille, helping with the campaign during the presidential campaign, and and she literally submitted her candidacy to 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 get the endorsement of en marche literally hours before the deadline, so no one knew her, uh, no one really. I mean, she she literally she literally did, you know, campaigned on Emmanuel Macron. She, she just said, you know, give Emmanuel Macron a chance. He's this new guy, young. He wants to, uh, to disrupt French politics, and I'm going to be helping him in, in Parliament. And it was really striking to see that um, even now, people, Marseille residents, don't really, don't really know her. So she really won because of Emmanuel Macron mostly. Now, Guy, you did some reporting from Saxony in East Germany. Tell us why you chose that as the place to to chart the rise of the far right in Germany. Well, Saxony was the site of a political earthquake in Germany uh, in September, the September the 24th Bundestag elections. The AFD, the Alternative for Germany, won in Saxony. They won 27% of the vote and beat Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union into second place. Now, that was an absolutely extraordinary result because the CDU, Merkel's party, has ruled Saxony basically since German reunification in 1990. They rule that state almost like it's their feudal territory. They have a total lockhold on on power there. And so it was just absolutely mind-blowing that the AFD should win there. They also won a handful of direct mandates, so direct uh, constituency seats as well, which was also pretty extraordinary. So it was almost like a revolution in Saxony. So I wanted to go to see why it had happened. And it's an extraordinary situation there. I mean, the AFD, what was really funny was that some of the MPs who were elected in these constituencies were total unknowns. One man, for example, was a was a house painter, and he beat the CDU uh, politician who was a very experienced guy who'd been in the Bundestag for many, many years. So it was almost like people really didn't even care who they were voting for. They just wanted to register their protest. And tell us a bit about the, the politics of Saxony, because we do read occasionally about how eastern part of Germany is a bit poor, a bit more behind you know, there are a sense of you know being neglected there, but that's not necessarily the case in Saxony, is it? No, Saxony is actually a real success story. Uh, they call it Silicon Saxony because it's had so much investment uh, into its local industry, and uh, you know they're building ele- electric vehicles there, and uh, you know cities like Leipzig and Dresden are really booming. Um, but um, but people still feel very very disgruntled there. It's um, there are several reasons for that. Um, there's the, the towns are doing well, but the rural population, the rural areas are not. Um, the local infrastructure is very poor. People have been complaining about it for ages. I mean, basically what's happened in East Germany is that so many young people have left uh, the East uh, to go to the West of Germany, where all the, the great job opportunities are. And there's been a kind of hollowing out um, of uh, the rural areas and and they've become very depopulated. And as they become depopulated, the local governments uh, just start withdrawing services because it doesn't make sense to have lots of bus lines and lots of GP surgeries and uh, and so on operating in in such uh, depopulated areas. And the the people that are left behind feel very, very disgruntled and, and angry that all this is happening. And they feel like they've lost control over their destinies. Uh, and I think 
they, that is one of the main reasons why they voted AFD. It's, a, it's an argument that you hear repeatedly in Saxony. Um, the, other, the other reason is, is refugees. Now, that is another peculiar thing because Saxony actually has an extremely white, extremely homogeneous, extremely German population. And uh, so I kept asking people, why, why did people vote um, uh, for the AFD, which is an anti-immigration party, when you have so few refugees? And they said, well, we want it to stay like that. We want Saxony uh, to remain white, essentially, and German, which is uh, what they were saying. They don't really care if that sounds racist. Um, they look at West Germany, they see big cities like Cologne, Dusseldorf, Duisburg, uh, which have very big ethnic minority populations. And um, they, see, uh, they see those cities in very, very negative terms. Uh, they talk about parallel societies. They talk about no-go areas for the police. That's a bit of an exaggeration. I mean, actually, uh, you know, German cities aren't really like that. But that's their very negative view of them. And uh, they say, we don't want Saxony to become like that. We don't want the rest of East Germany to become like that. So uh, this is one of the other reasons why they voted AFD. It's very interesting. It's, um, Anne Sylvain mentioned this also in the piece, um, people, quoting an analyst who said that one of the reasons why people are voting for these populist parties, we all think it's because they're the left behind and they're people who have uh, suffered from globalization and European integration and so on. But that's not entirely true. They're voting as well for these parties for cultural reasons, for reasons of cultural identity. Uh, and this is something that the AFD has been extremely good at. Uh, they've harnessed this fear in the German psyche about a loss of national identity and um, and they've used it uh, to great uh, uh, success. I mean, they got 13% in the Bundestag election, which is an extraordinary result. And so then taking us back to northern Marseille, um, it's six months after the election, Macron's candidate won surprisingly. But what is the mood now? Does uh, he still have a lot of support there? Or, or have things uh, cooled down? Is there a bit more scepticism about him and his candidate in the area? His victory was in many ways Exceptional and, and, and also very fragile. I mean, as, as Alexandra Louis' victory in Marseille, you know, her, you know, shows, no one really knew her. People voted for her because she was the a new alternative. And uh, there was also a coalition of mainstream voters from the right and the left who decided to vote for her. So she managed to, to um, really rally the center ground uh, behind her. But but the national front hasn't really hasn't vanished, and and, the, and his ideas in northern Marseille haven't either. And it was really interesting attending some of the meetings uh, she had during one day. And she was um, uh, sitting down with uh, she sat down with uh, residents, you know, constituents, uh, um, local local residents clubs, and so on. And and after that, you know, I I, I talked to them, and and you can you know sense that you know they are. Um, worried about um, the impact of immigration. There's widespread concern about how some of the estates do, do not integrate, how, how you know, some of the uh, second and third generation of, of immigrants are just not integrate very well. And, and there are a lot, you know, there, you know, a lot of drug dealing in Marseille and, and some, some of the estates very uh, difficult uh, areas. Even the police are reluctant to, to intervene in, these, in some of these estates. Alexandre, had we even, even mentioned the fact that there were no-go, you know, uh, lawless? She, she, she admitted that some of the zones were very, very um, tricky. So there's, there's, you know, security, the, you know, anxiety over French identity, the impact uh, of immigration. 
there, there are still, you know, major concerns in in Marseille, which is a which is a, a huge town of um, about one million inhabitants, and which is basically a mosaic of it's like a big puzzle of different, you know, uh, neighborhoods, wealthy even and estates, then an old village, you know. I mean, we'll see in two years' time when there's other new elections, and I think in France the the big test will be the EU elections in 2019, we'll see, you know, exactly where we are in terms of far-right ideas. And, and we can also see um, in France that the mainstream right, um, the former, Repu- I mean, the Republican Party, which, which had, you know, which was defeated during the presidential election and the legislative elections in June, we, we can see in France that they're shifting to the right, their new leader, Laurent Vauquier, is, is almost, you know, is embracing the far-right ideas on uh, immigration. Um, he's been campaigning on immigration to win the leadership of the party uh, last week. So um, so that's going to be a big, big test in 2019. So if I can ask you both to, to stand back for a second, we've had a year where the far-right didn't win the elections in either country, but did historically well in both countries. So what do you imagine the you know the impact is going to be on politics going forward? And Guy, maybe you can start. Anselman was talking about how the more the more centre right in France is already adopting a lot of the more anti immigration rhetoric and some policies. Are you seeing that a lot in the centre right in Germany and is that going to be how this plays out in the medium term? Absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, Angela Merkel's uh, CDU is definitely tacking a little bit to the right on the refugee issue. I mean, actually, it's been a very, very long drip, drip process uh, uh, from the sort of peak of of her kind of uh, welcome, refugees welcome uh, kind of policy of 2015-16. The government has gradually tightened um, its asylum policies, and actually, uh, it's much harder now for refugees to come into Germany. And um, the CDU recently struck a deal with its sister party in Bavaria, the CSU, uh, which uh, really toughened things up uh, quite substantially, uh, basically saying that there was going to be only a, a 200,000 uh, refugees w- w- would be allowed into Germany uh, every year, uh, except in humanitarian emergencies. Um, and there, are, there, were, there was a raft of measures, actually, which they agreed, uh, which they're going to be very keen to push through in any coalition government they form. Probably at this stage, it looks likely it's going to be with the Social Democrats. Um, so, so, yes, you can definitely see uh, an influence. Um, it, it, it's, also, it's also likely that the AFD being in Parliament, uh, they've got about 92 seats there, um, and their voice combined with the Free Democrats, uh, which is a sort of liberal party, which also did well in the September election. Um, it's a liberal party, but, but it's actually a little bit Eurosceptic as well. That The AFD and the FDP could uh, push the government to be a little bit more uh, sort of Eurosceptic, Euroskept- maybe isn't the word, but a, a little bit cooler on, on further uh, moves to uh, towards European integration. Um, Merkel is a very pro-European uh, politician, as, in, as is Martin Schulz of the Social Democrats. But um, that's a, a very sizable chunk of the Bundestag is now going to be quite Eurosceptic. So they're going to have to keep an eye on that. And that might pull them a little bit uh, uh, further to the right on Europe. Um, so you're going to see the effect of, of, of this infiltration of, of politics by the populist right in, in many different ways in Germany and, and in Europe more, more widely. And so, Van, maybe you can pick that up. You mentioned already how 
the centre-right is, is tacking to the right on immigration, but what are the other impact going to be? And pick up Guy's theme about how the, uh, the far-right in Germany might make it harder to have a more pro-European integration platform. Um, that's obviously one of the main themes of Emmanuel Macron. Is the rise of the, the National Front going to make it harder for him to push that? I mean, in the short term, um, I mean, the, you know, he's got, a, a, I mean, Emmanuel Macron has a, a large majority uh, in Parliament and he has, you know, pretty large executive powers. So on the short term, he, you know, he can do basically whatever he, he wants. Um, his strategy on this issue of identity and immigration and refugee has been to literally um, um, uh, not avoid them, but really talk, I mean, not really talk, not really addressing them. And he hasn't really addressed them uh, so far. I think these strategies that, you know, the more you talk about it, and I think there's a there's a nice quote from Kaz Mudo, uh, you know, this um, professor at uh, University of Georgia, um, who says, you know, the more you talk about immigration and Islam, you know, the more they become um, problematic issues. And um, and Michael and I think you know that's right. In, that's that's accurate. In, in France, it's been the case that the more you talked about it, the more it became, um, you know, the more it helped the National Front in many ways. Um, so Emmanuel Macron is is basically avoiding these issues. But um, but um, but it's you know he's betting basically that his economic reforms are going to be enough to uh, to. Um, to reassure those voters, you know, who are anxious about their, you know, identity and and and, and French culture and uh, and um, and immigration, um, I'm not sure that's going to be, you know, enough personally, um, because um, we've seen that these, you know, pressures, uh, these, you know, populist pressures are, you know, um, happening in in countries where um, those reforms that he's carrying out um, have been implemented already. So um, I think in, in France, it's, it's not going to have, you know, impact, in, short-term impacts. But I think, as, as Guy was, uh, you know, uh, saying, I think it will have a broader impact on Europe. Um, and on, because the, the, the mere, you know, the, the, the principle of solidarity has been, has been um, hurt during the refugee crisis. You know, um, Europe has tried to uh, come up with a with a mechanism to to share, you know, the 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 influx of refugees, you know, across Europe, and it has, you know, it hasn't really um, been been welcome, you know, across Europe, and it's, it's you know, the mechanism has just been um, ditched by the the, the Commission uh, last week. Um, so it will have, I think some impact on, on other um, areas of, of EU integration, um, including economic integration, fiscal transfers. You know, if we can't, if Europe cannot agree on how to solve the refugee crisis, um, will it, you know, agree on, on fiscal transfers and economic solidarity? Um, it's, it's a big concern. And so, Vanna, the, the time of the presidential election, Though you did hear a lot of people saying that you know, Macron is essentially the last chance for the establishment, and that if he doesn't, if his government is fails in the way that the Hollande government was perceived to fail, then the National Front really will have a very good chance next time round. Is that the right way to think about the Macron government? Are they the last hope for the French centre ground? I mean, he's positioning himself as the bulwark um, uh, against populist in France. 
so in many ways he's you know he's um <laughs> you know he's he's making that point so and uh but it's probably, a, a, we'll see, you know, um, the centre-right, at the moment the problem is that he has no proper opposition, mainstream opposition, um, you know, on the on the right and on the left. It's a bit too early to say whether, you know, the, 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 the Republican or the Socialist Party will be able to, to um, rebuild, regroup and, and uh, become something more significant in the next few years. Um, the National Front is is not in a great state, um, even though his you know ideas, the ideas that he's been defending, and or not you know haven't vanished. Um, the, the party itself is has been weakened by the, the by Marine Le Pen's uh, defeat uh, in the presidential election. Um, so you know, um, uh, so yes, Macron is you know probably the last chance of the mainstream. Uh, polit- you know, politician in France, but on the other hand, um, the political landscape is, you know, is 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 a big is, is a desert um, around him. So he's got, he's also got, you know, an opportunity to 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 make it right. Uh, and Guy, last question for you. All this is happening at a time where Angela Merkel, her party came out as the biggest winner, the biggest party in the elections, but she is looking beleaguered in many ways. She's failed in her first attempt to put together a coalition government. Um, is this the beginning of the end for Angela Merkel? And, and if so, what will that mean for the space for populist far-right parties in Germany if she was to disappear from the scene? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I was speaking to a, an analyst yesterday who said basically the zenith of, of Merkel's power, uh, both in Germany and in Europe, was uh, around 2015 before the refugee crisis. Um, it's definitely the case that the refugee crisis really undermined her authority, uh, both in Germany and elsewhere. I mean, uh, conservatives in her party, the CDU, won't forgive her uh, for the fact that she pushed the party so far to the centre uh, that she left this gaping vacuum on the right, which has now been occupied by uh, the AFD. They're absolutely horrified uh, that a, a sort of far-right party has been able to enter the Bundestag, the first one to do so in more than 50, more than, uh, 50 years, and uh, they blame um, Ms. Merkel for that. Uh, yes, so you, you definitely have a sense that um, Angela Merkel's uh, sort of authority uh, in her own party and in Germany uh, itself has been undermined and uh, by extension her authority in Europe. Um, and this comes at a time where the Europeans are very eager to get a German response to Emmanuel Macron's reform proposals. So far we haven't had one. So there is a sort of feeling of political paralysis at the moment in Germany which doesn't do the country's image abroad any good. And, and that is, is definitely grist to the mill of the populist parties such as the AFD, because they've been banging on for months, uh, if not years now, uh, about how the established parties are basically incompetent and ineffective and that the, the establishment is bankrupt uh, morally and politically and that they want to shake things up. And um, in a way, the, the, the kind of paralysis that we're seeing is, is in many ways a kind of a vindication of, of the arguments that they, they've been deploying uh, over the past few months. Alfred, that's all we've got time for today. So I just say thank you to Anselvain Chassani in Paris and Guy Chazan in Berlin. And thank you for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.